Uh, we found out a church in Santa Clara, the uh, county or whoever it was, came and closed their doors and threatened the pastor if he showed up, he would be arrested this morning. That pastor has decided to show up anyway. And uh, Pastor John, are you in the room right now? Uh, I'm trying to remember what the name of that church is, but I know it's a Baptist church in Santa Clara. So again, uh, and there's probably more stories that we don't know about. There's other churches that have received cease and desist orders and all of that. And in each case, uh, those pastors have just said, we are going to stand. I, I saw a interview with Rob McCoy and I want to, and this, this is germane to what we're dealing with this morning. And Rob said, there's nothing that they can take away, away from me that I haven't already given to Christ. I've given him everything. And I'll tell you what, if you decide in your life that you will give Christ everything, then you have nothing to lose. And if you can decide to live your life that way and not be on the fence about who you are and what you believe and where you're headed, it will change everything in your life. That uh, idea goes with this text. It's 1 Thessalonians 4, in, beginning in verse 9. Now, as to the love of the brethren, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And here's our title. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your living word addressing all of the big issues of life and death. And here we are on a Sunday morning where so grateful to be together, so grateful for each one that has joined with us in worship, whether they're here, whether they're seated outside, whether they are watching via live stream, we are grateful for this family. And what has brought us together, Lord, is you. You are our God, our Father. You are the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions, so that we can comfort others with the comfort with which we've been comforted by God. We are so grateful that you're the God, you're the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. And this is a bumpy world, and right now it's a little bump here, Lord, but thank you that you are faithful. Thank you that we know how the story ends, and thank you that we can have confidence now uh, that you are in control, that you love us, and that death has been conquered. And we find great solace and peace and comfort in these words. And Lord, as we navigate through the text, I pray whatever you want us to hear, see, apply, we would do so unto your glory. In Jesus' name I pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Now some big sweeping themes for you as you follow the flow of the text. You'll find in verse 3, that Paul talked about the will of God, and he said, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. The word sanctification there is a big Christian doctrine or theme, and it means to be set apart to serve God. And so we talked about that. We talked about how you've been set apart as a vessel fit for the master's use. That's why you should be holy. Now, the second major theme that you're going to see, especially in verses 13 through 18, is glorification. 
So we're moving from sanctification to glorification. And I would say to you that this is probably not talked about as much as it should be talked about, but we are going to be glorified. And we are going to get a new resurrection body and we are going to live forever and ever with our Lord. And if we get our arms around, our hearts around glorification this morning, or maybe afresh this morning, there is nothing in your life that would cause you to fret or be fearful. You know, we're going to have our moments. We're going to be concerned about other people and situations. But glorification answers the biggest dilemma that mankind has. And that is this. It's the fear of death. And as a believer, you can know, this is what Jesus said. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, he will live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Your body will die, but you will never die. On the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will never die. Praise the Lord. He who keeps my word will never see death. John 8, I think it's about verse 5, that's a paraphrase. You will never see death. Your body will die, but you ain't going to die. In fact, the moment that you breathe your last here on this side, you're going to be with the Lord, and to depart and be with Christ is far better. Not just better, far better. Yet to remain on with you is more necessary, Paul says in Philippians 1, 21 through 23. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, we all know that our lives have great value. We don't want to rush the process, amen? But while we're here, we need to live our lives in the light of that reality and use our lives for the glory of the one who saved us and for the extension of his kingdom. Are you doing that? That's the real question. Because otherwise, God should just take us home. If it's far better to be with the Lord, to be absent from this body, and to be at home with the Lord, then why are we here? We're here to extend His kingdom. We're here to be ambassadors of the gospel. We're here to love those around us like God has taught us to love. And so we have an opening uh, exhortation here. Before we get into the glorification passages now, verse 9, as to the love of the brethren, that word for brethren there is Philadelphia, it's brotherly love. You have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves are literally God taught to love one another. And since you are taught by God to love one another, I'm not going to try to teach you, so let's move on to the next verse. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> now, we all need to be taught to love one another, and this would be the sign, Jesus said, that we belong to him. Sometimes people ask questions, how do I know that I'm saved? You know, we have verses that we can point to, the Spirit of God bears witness with my spirit that I belong to God, but that still might seem somewhat subjective, that is, you know, how do I really sense that? Can someone else see the Spirit in me? That kind of thing. But here's a very important verse, and write this down. This is 1 John 3, 14. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love God's people. The greatest evidence that you belong to God, at least on a horizontal plane when other people look at your life, is your love for God's people. In fact, it, it is an affirmation for your own soul. You can know that you've passed out of death into life because you love God's people. This is a question that we need to be asking. Lord, is, is your love in my heart for your people? Now, I'm not saying that's always going to be the easiest thing in the world, but brotherly love is a beautiful gift within the body of Christ. And we are taught by God to love. How does he teach us? Well, this is just some of my own conjecture or what I would say is I put Bible verses together, but one of the ways that he teaches us to love one another is simply by the, uh, the model or the example of Jesus. He went around loving. He showed his greatest uh, demonstration of love was on the cross. 
God put his love on display at the cross. And he says, as I have loved you, so you should love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, that you belong to me. This is a challenging time to love one another, maybe more than we've ever experienced in our lifetimes, because the church is divided about a lot of things. We could talk about the things going on with the virus. We could talk about how we're to navigate these times. We could talk about political point of views and everything else in between. Styles of worship. You know, people could argue about such silly peripheral things. And there are challenges for us to love. But the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. Romans 12.10 says, Be devoted to one another in Philadelphia. Romans 12.10, In brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. It's not about you. It's about God and others. Do nothing, Philippians 2.3, from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Philippians 2.3, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. How are you doing with that? Now, these are the verses that we can skip over if we've been a Christian for a while, if we've studied the Bible for a while, but don't take these verses for granted because these are the verses that are probably the most challenging. God teaches us to love one another. We are God-taught. And the Holy Spirit, I believe, is always not nudging us towards love. Always saying the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. This is how you're going to manifest my goodness, my presence, my grace to others. Now here's the good news. For indeed, verse 10, you do practice it toward all the brethren. They were doing well. And I think living truth is a place where I see the love of God on display all the time. Toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. NIV. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia, Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Keep excelling. Keep getting holier, as we read in the sanctification passage. Keep loving more and more. Lord, help me to love more today than I did yesterday. You know, if that's a prayer, if, if your prayer is Galatians 5, 6, that I want my faith to constantly be expressing itself through love, what a great prayer. I'll tell you what, if that is your mark on any given day, any given week, Lord, just help me to express my faith through love. Wow. Your marriage, your relationships, your friendships will just, they will blossom. Because love is a place that makes things grow. That's the environment of growth. And make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. I've quoted this verse many times in the car to children in the back seat. This should be your ambition. <laughs> this is a, a great Bible verse to quote to people who you just want to be quiet. You say, on the authority of the Bible, you should be living a quiet life. And all God's people said, shh. <laughs> now what does this mean? Does this mean we're to walk around not saying anything to anybody? As the, the story of the He's a, the monk is in the monastery, and he's taken an oath of silence. He can only speak once a year. And so a year comes by, and he is able to speak, and he can only say a couple words, and he says, bed hard. Another year goes by, he's taken a vow of silence, and he says, food cold. And uh, he says something else. Another year goes by, it's like a three-year thing, and then finally, you know, the three years goes by, and he's talking with the leaders there, and he said, you know, I'm out of here. I can't take this anymore, and they say to him, well, no wonder. You've done nothing but complain since you've come here. <laughs> Here's an ambition verse, a, a target. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, and the, the verse kind of rounds out the language here because it means to attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. I was doing some research on this, and Proverbs 16, 27 in the Living Bible says this, Idle hands are the devil's workshop. Idle lips are his mouthpiece. 
And some people, in light of the teaching of the Word of God on the resurrection and rapture, which we're about to get to, had become busybodies, and apparently they had stopped working, and they said, you know what, I, I'm not going to work anymore. I'm just going to prepare for the second coming and the rapture and all of that. And they started becoming busybodies, and they were in other people's business, and they were mooching off other people. And in these letters, Paul is going to address things like, if people don't work, then they shouldn't eat. You should be working with your hands and working hard. Look, in our generation that is up and coming, that has lived in this idea of technology and the tech world, and I know there's a lot of fun things that go with that, there is a beauty in hard work. Amen? And I spend a lot of my time in books and before computers, but I enjoy just mowing my lawn and, you know, pulling weeds just so I can do some physical labor. How many of you remember the movie Pale Rider? Clint Eastwood? If you haven't seen that movie, you need to repent and just <laughs> return to your first love. Anyway, well, in that movie, he comes back, and this is his whole story, but he's a preacher, and uh, he says, why don't you put me to work to this guy? And this guy says, oh, well, if we have something spiritual around here, we'll, we'll get you to do it. And he goes, the spirit ain't worth spit without a little hard work. <laughs> There's Clint Eastwood on spiritual matters. Anyway, uh, we'll move on. <laughs> Look, Paul was a tent maker. And he had set an example in Thessalonica that even though he was an apostle, even though he had the right to ask for you know, monetary support, in many of the towns he didn't do it. He worked hard with his hands. And there's a beauty to hard work. And if you're a believer and you work for a company, one of your greatest examples before a watching world will be your work ethic. Amen? And so... It's good for, I think, our younger generation to do a little work with dad. And, you know, I'm not the most handy person in the world, but I do think that there's a value just getting out there and just working hard and, and looking at a lawn freshly cut and just going, yeah, it's good, right? Or whatever you enjoy doing. See, if you are not busy in work and in the gospel proclamation, you'll become a busy body. And you, if you're idle, it becomes the devil's playground. Right now, there's obviously a lot of people out of work, but there's also a lot of people perhaps taking advantage of help. And so I'll just let that sit for what it's worth, but I'll say to you, there is a beauty in work and we were made to work. And by the way, work is not a result of the fall because Adam was told to tend the garden before they fell. And so there's a beauty and a, uh, an example in work. And so that you behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So that your daily life, verse 12, NIV, win the respect of outsiders. And so that you will not be dependent on anybody. And all God's people said, hmm. See, we live in a day right now where a message is coming to American society that the government will take care of you. I, I, that's not a biblical ethic, you guys. Now, obviously we rejoice when the government can step in and help people. Don't get me wrong. But I think we have leaned so far this way that we've lost sight of what the biblical ethic is. And that is that each person works hard and takes care of themselves and their family. In fact, in 1 Timothy 5, when Paul talks about widows, he says family members should take care of widows that are widows indeed. And if family can't do it or if there's no family, then the church steps in. Boy, we've moved a long distance from that, I would say, in the confessing church in America. And so we move now from those exhortations about love and working hard to another matter, and that is the idea of the resurrection and the rapture. Let's take a look. Now, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve or sorrow, as do the rest who have no hope. Just a side note, Bible students, there are some that believe that 
Paul is responding to questions from the Thessalonian church, perhaps questions about love and work, uh, but more so to the point they probably had a question about death and those who had died before the second coming. I told you when we did an introduction to these two letters that outside of Revelation, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians have the most content about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so they may have asked, uh, you know, okay, we've been learning that the Lord's going to come again. We've been learning about his glorious appearing, but what about those who die before he comes again? What happens to those people? And as I, you know, look into a camera representing a live stream group of our family and those of you who are here, I know that we've all been touched by this. Because a lot of you have had to stand at a cemetery and lay somebody to rest and ask the big questions about what you believe. And Charles Swindoll said, you know, when it comes down to worldviews, it's not whether you can live with your worldview, it's whether you can die with it. And this is one of those areas that Christianity answers emphatically. Jesus answers this emphatically by his own resurrection. But Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed. Look at verse 13, brethren. I don't want you to be ignorant, this word can be translated, about those who are asleep. And asleep here is not physical rest or sleep. Uh, Even Jesus said, he's sleeping of Lazarus, but I go to awaken him. And then he says, no, he's dead. Something about sleep that's uh, interesting just to think about as it relates to this is sleep is always temporary. You know, we, we sleep an evening worth of rest, and hopefully you all get a good night's rest. Maybe you take a nap, but you're always going to wake up from that. So sleep is a, uh, it's a way to define the Christian's body that has died. It's simply referred to as sleep. And so this is not that someone is sleeping in the way that we understand it. It is a metaphor, a picture, another way to say a Christian who has died. I don't want you to be uninformed about those who have died or died in the Lord. That you may not grieve or sorrow. Here's why Paul is encouraging them. As do the rest who have no hope. Now in doing some study on you know, just how other people looked at death and dying, in the Roman and Greek cultures, it was a, a bummer. It was really a hopeless kind of thing. There was a, a great cloud over death. It's seen in some of their grave markers, a real uncertainty, a real bummer. And I'll tell you, having pastored now almost uh, a couple, well, more than a couple of decades now, I can tell you this. The difference between a believer's memorial service and an unbeliever's funeral is the difference between day and night. Because I have looked at it, a group of people quite hopeful, Christians who know to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord, and even though they were grieving, they still were doing what I will call hopeful grieving. And that's what I would say to you that you and I can do in the face of death, and death is such a hard thing, and some of you have lost somebody recently, and even, you know, we think of, uh, you know, I'm a dog person, beloved pets, we were talking the other day about having to put down a couple of pets or, or dogs, and it's just such a hard thing, and I'll just tell you, you know, all dogs go to heaven, so you don't have to worry about that, okay, the, the movie was right, all cats are totally in question, but... <laughs> We won't go there because I know I always ruffle some feathers. <laughs> but death is a hard thing. And here's, here's what you can pull out of verse thir- 13, if nothing else. You can practice hopeful grieving. Or you can grieve with hope. Look at the end of the verse. See, the rest of the world has no hope. They are Ephesians 2.12, without hope, without God, and without hope in the world. Those who don't have Jesus, who is the hope of all believers, don't have hope, but you have hope. And that hope is the anchor of your soul, and that hope is beyond the grave. And yes, you grieve. It is silly for any pastor to stand up and say to a group of people who have come to honor uh, a person who has died in the Lord, oh, there'll be no boo-hooing in here. The person's in heaven. Get over it. I would say, you preacher... 
you need to get over yourself. Because the Bible teaches that we grieve, but we do hopeful grieving, not hopeless grieving. Everybody with me? Of course you're going to grieve if you lose a loved one. You're going to grieve the, the missing of them, but your missing of them is simply temporary, and that's the good news. Amen? And right now we are hosting a grief share uh, evening here where people are trying to walk through you know, what they would say are stages of grief, and there are certainly stages of grief, and it is hard and nobody should try to underestimate how much grief hurts and how, you know, it's hard to even articulate what people go through. But we as believers have hope beyond this life. We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you don't sorrow as do the rest who have no hope. I've heard some amazing stories about, you know, people who have lost loved ones and they say, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. And they respond, oh, my, my child isn't lost. I know exactly where they are. My spouse isn't lost. I know exactly where they are. It's just a matter of me stepping in to that eternity and I'm going to be with them again. That is hopeful grieving. You say, well, on what basis can we say such things? Is this just simply pie in the sky is this just some you know, made-up thing to make us feel a little bit better as we stand in a cemetery or have to face death or a bad diagnosis? Well, look at verse 14. For if, and it could be rendered since we believe, that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep or died, notice, in Jesus. This is the key. You want to die in the Lord. You don't want to go into eternity without knowing Jesus. And if you don't know him, please come to know him now. Don't play Russian roulette with your soul. How silly to put off the most important decision of your life. We had a woman some years back who came in. She was invited by some of the members here. She had been a Jehovah's Witness for a long time. She came in. She heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Her friend said that she prayed the sinner's prayer on the back row. Uh, they heard, overheard her praying as the prayer was led from the front. She left that evening. You know, you think, oh, great. You know, my friend opened their heart to the Lord. She was in her 20s and died of a car accident that week. We don't know what a day is going to bring. And so Paul says here, it's on the basis of the facts of the Death and resurrection, 14 of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. And he proved it by the immutable fact of the resurrection. He came out of the tomb, amen? The enemies of the Lord had to lie about what happened. The apostles were behind closed doors and couldn't believe it for joy. But Jesus was alive. And he appeared over a period of 40 days Acts chapter 1, verse 3, declaring the things of the kingdom to the apostles and giving evidence of his resurrection. For 40 days he kept appearing to them. I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive. Amen? And because he lives, we will live. If there is no resurrection, turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, it's going to be a little bit back in your Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, the most exhaustive uh, chapter on resurrection. Let's take a peek at a few verses for our encouragement. This is back in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 15. If there is no resurrection of the dead, and even, not even Christ has been raised, verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain. Moreover, we have even been found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, 16, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's worthless. You're still in your sins. You're dead. See, the wages of sin is death. And I'm not just talking about your body dying. I'm talking about a separation from God and judgment, 18. 
Then those who have fallen asleep, there's our idea of sleep again, in Christ have perished. They're under the judgment of God, Paul might say. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But keep reading, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits, the guarantee of the rest of the harvest of those who are asleep or who have died. For since by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. When? Each in his own order, 23, Christ, the first fruits, he rose in the very history in which we are embedded, we know that. After that, those who are Christ are going to rise when? At his coming. That's the second coming that we've been studying in First and Second Thessalonians. Then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. And then just skip down to verse 26. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Praise the Lord. Death dies in the second coming of Jesus Christ when we're all risen in our bodies. You say, well, then what is going on right now with someone who has died? Because that's a Thessalonian question. Well, we're going to get to that, but they are very much alive. They're more alive probably than they've ever been. You say, but their body's in the ground, or maybe they've been cremated, or maybe they you know, died in war, or were eaten by a shark. How, how does this work? See, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. That is, there is an intermediate state prior to the resurrection. What all that looks like, I do not know. But Paul said to depart and be with Christ is far better. So whatever it is, here's what we do know. It's that we're with the Lord. Some years ago, there was a preacher in the South. He had had a, uh, what they considered a pretty common heart surgery. He was uh, awake during the procedure. They were going up through his thigh, I believe, to fix a valve or fix uh, his arteries. And all of a sudden, he said, the doctor said to him, I'm so sorry, it's gone wrong. It's just gone wrong. And he said he, he, he just passed out. And he said he found himself walking with the Lord Jesus. He said it was more real or as real than as if he were walking to the store with his wife or a friend of his. He said, I was walking with Jesus in glory, in paradise. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, most assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me, where? In paradise, which is another word for heaven. Hey, I'm telling you right now, today we're going to be hanging out in paradise. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Paradise. Can I get a witness? Today, you'll be with me. Stephen, when he's being stoned, he says, Lord, he sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and he fell asleep. To be sure, Stephen went right up to the Lord, who was standing, I think, saying, good job, Stephen. Way to fight the good fight. Welcome home. This is the reality for all believers. You see, Death is going to be abolished. Go over to verse 51 uh, of 1 Corinthians 15. It says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We're not all going to die. We all shall be changed. Here's both resurrection and rapture. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, never to spoil again, and we shall be changed. We shall be changed from you know, uh, mortal to immortal. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. But when the perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to see your victory. Amen? For the battle belongs to the Lord. And as we were singing that song, I was thinking to myself, it's already won. He already 
defeated principalities and powers at the cross and through the resurrection. We're just waiting to walk into the fullness of the victory. We've already won. I like to be on the winning side. I always save myself some turmoil. I'll go back to 1 Thessalonians when I record the games of my favorite teams and then someone blows it and tells me the outcome. And I say, would you please start to live a quiet life? <laughs> Mind to your own business. But anyway, but if I know the outcome of the game, and let's just say my team won, Dodgers, Pittsburgh Steelers. Anyway, uh, I'm so much more at ease when I'm watching the game. Because I'm like, ah, it doesn't matter. We fumbled, it doesn't matter, because I know the outcome. Oh, we threw an interception, doesn't matter. Oh, they hit a home run, I don't care. Because we win, we win. So much more relaxing. Would you live your life that way? Oh, I know this happened. I got cut off. I'm sitting on the 91. But, but we win. Oh, that person's always snarly to me. But you know what? We win. <laughs> I could say more, but we'll leave it. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, this is upon the authority of God's word, that we who are alive and remain, or you could render that word survive until the coming, that's our Greek word parousia, the second coming of the Lord, shall not precede or go before those who have fallen asleep or died. Now Paul is going to explain how this is going to work. It's all going to happen at the second coming of Jesus and a little bit more in verse 16. For the Lord himself, not an angel, not a representative, the Lord himself, Jesus himself, will descend from heaven with a shout, a victor shout, a command is the idea of the language, with the voice of the archangel. We know Michael is listed as an archangel in the Bible. And with the trumpet of God, and what's going to happen, brethren? The dead in Christ, here's the order, shall rise first. The resurrection is going to happen at the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And by the way, in my understanding of the Bible, there is one second coming. Now this is debated among good people who some believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, some believe in a mid and post and pre-wrath and all of this. But I'll just tell you this. There is one return of Christ, one second coming where this all happens. And the rapture will not happen before the resurrection. So any movies that you've seen about the rapture where there's unmanned cars and airplanes that have no pilot and clothes laid out on a bed, where did that person go? And, you know, maybe aliens, too. maybe there's this conspiracy and all this stuff. That's really not what the Bible says. The Bible says that when Jesus appears, Revelation 1-7, every eye will see him. It says as the lightning flashes from the east to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So when this event happens of the return of Christ, when he enters back onto the human stage, in the same way that you saw him go up, Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, he will come in like fashion. When Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 1, he, he was uh, hidden by a cloud and he went up. And wherever up is, you know, in dimensions and all of that, this is what the Bible says, he will come down in like fashion. Why do you stand staring up here, staring up into the air? This same Jesus will return in like fashion that he went. And so the second coming is going to be the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's going to be called the day of the Lord. And we'll study it in the very next chapter. It's his day. And here's what's going to happen on that day. The Lord is going to appear in all his glory, all his angels with him. He's going to rescue his people through a resurrection and a rapture, pull them out like Noah was pulled out of the world when the flood came and like Lot was, and his family was pulled out of Sodom before the fire and brimstone came. 
And here's basically what we have. The Lord appears, he pulls his people out, rescues them, and then pours the judgment on the world. Just like it was in the days of Noah, just like it was in the days of Lot, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Everybody with me? But the rapture will not happen apart from the resurrection. In fact, we just read, the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, this, this was the question that the Thessalonians had. They're, they're like, well, what about our dead loved ones? Have they missed this glorious return that Paul was teaching us about? You know, what, what, is, what is the order? How is this going to work? Will I see them again? Will, have they missed out on the splendor and majesty of this event? And Paul's answer is, oh, no. In fact, they are very much advantaged, not disadvantaged. They're going to rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the clouds. So they're going first. You might hold on to an ankle. I don't know how it's going to work if you're one of the raptured people. But there is a close association between resurrection and rapture. They are pretty much, you know, one, two, very close. Then we who are alive and remain, look at verse uh, 17, shall be caught up. Now see that phrase caught up? That's the Greek word harpazo, H-A-R-P-A-Z-O. And this is where we get the idea of a rapture. Rapture is a Latin word, and it's only found in the Latin version of the Bible or the, the Vulgate version. Okay? That's where we get the idea of rapturo or rapture. The word has kind of some meaning of uh, violence to it, as, as if someone is kind of violently pulled away. But it can have a positive. Let me just read a note from F.F. F. Bruce. The verb for caught up or harpazo or rapture implies violent action sometimes to the benefit of its object, as when Roman soldiers snatched Paul from the rioters in the Jerusalem council chamber, Acts 23.10, or when the male child in the apocalyptic vision was caught up to God to preserve him from the red dragon, Revelation 12.5. It is used in Acts 8.39 of the spirit snatching Philip away after he witnessed to the Ethiopian eunuch, and of Paul's being caught up to the third heaven or paradise in 2 Corinthians 12, 2, and 3. And so it's going to happen in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, before you could even blink your eye. Bam! Jesus appears and whoosh! And we're going to, wow! I don't know what it's going to be. Uh, but, you know, think cool roller coasters. and I don't know. This is going to be a snatching away. And we're going to be together with them. And earlier he said he's going to bring them with him that is, those who have died, we're going to be together with them in the clouds. These are not rain clouds. These are glory clouds. Exodus 19, uh, other places like Exodus 40, it's the glory clouds. It's the Shekinah. We're going to be in the midst of the glory, like the Mount of Transfiguration, when the Father's voice comes down on the mountain and Jesus is changed before them. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about glory. We're talking about being caught up in the midst of glory. Not rain clouds where you're saying, well, we have umbrellas. But in glory. And we're going to all be together. And what do you think we're going to be doing? Something like this. Oh, yeah, I'm going to see your victory. <laughs> I saw your victory. Yeah. Things are going to be a little excitement. A little like, oh, I haven't seen you for a while. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Hey, Moses. Nice to meet you, brother. Come on. This is exciting. And the word to meet is an interesting word because the word meet, it's pontison in Greek. It was used in ancient times of meeting an incoming dignitary at the edge of town and walking him back into the destination. Now, that meaning doesn't have to be forced on this text, but that's why some people believe that the meeting that takes place will then accompany Jesus to the earth. This is just peripheral things to consider. There's others that say, no, we'll meet him and go back to heaven for a time as he judges the world. It all depends on your timing of all of this and your view of the last days. 
But here's where Pontus sin is also used. At midnight, Jesus says, Matthew 25, 6, there was a shout, behold, the bridegroom comes, let's come out to meet him. That's the word Pontus sin. And so I want to show you, before we do the closing verse, one other place to look. It's Matthew 24. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So it's the first book of your New Testament. Let me just show you how Jesus affirmed this order. Matthew 24. He was asked the question by his disciples, when will be your coming? What will be the sign of your return, the end of the age? And here's what he says. Go down to Matthew 24, 27. Just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus, be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the glory clouds of the sky with power and great glory, not Greg Laurie, great glory, although I think Greg Laurie will be there too. And he will send forth his angels, I, I believe here's the caravans, with a great trumpet, there's that trumpet again we saw in 1 Thessalonians 4, and they, the angels, will gather together who? His elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. This is what Jesus said. This is what Paul says. This is what Peter says, back to 1 Thessalonians 4. And this is why we can comfort one another with these words. You know, the word for cemetery is the word for sleep in 1 Thessalonians 4. A cemetery is a place for sleeping. But remember, the soul never sleeps we do not believe in soul sleep. That is not a biblical doctrine. The body looks like it's sleeping because the eyes are typically shut. But the body is just waiting for a reuniting. And there is an intermediate state. I don't know what all that looks like. But when the Lord returns, this type of place, there are graves that are going to open. I don't know how it all will work. But at the command of the Lord, at the victor's shout, it'll be something like we saw at the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth! And the tomb could not hold him. Amen? And at the command of the Lord, we're going to rise. That person that you have laid to rest, at least their body, they're going to rise. And by the way, it would appear at about the age of 18... I don't know for sure, but that's what I'm thinking. In their prime. And there's evidence from the resurrection body of Jesus that we get to eat without losing, without worrying about losing weight or calories. Could you imagine eating whatever you want and you don't have to worry about calories? Some of you say, I already do that. If you already do that, shame on you. I covet your metabolism. I used to be able to eat a burrito at midnight and not worry about it anymore. I look at the burrito and I gain five pounds. It's wrong. It's part of this fallen world. But I have great comfort for you. You're going to rise. You're going to be new. And you won't have to worry about calories anymore, apparently. I know it's probably not high on the priority list, but for me it matters part of my eschatology <laughs> now brethren on a serious note <laughs> these are tidings of great joy because this picture behind me is one of the hardest places I've ever stood truth be told it's tough I did a memorial service um, at a graveside for a young man, and it was, it was so hard. He was in his early 20s and heard his dad say goodbye to him. And that's hard stuff. But to be able to say no for us, that's just seeing a little bit. Makes all the difference, doesn't it? We have hope. 
and Jesus Christ is our hope. Father, thank you so much for your living word, these hopeful words. We can comfort one another with these words. We are going to see every person that has died in the Lord again. They are just waiting for us. And it's just a matter of time. And we don't have to be afraid. Because the fear of death is conquered in the hope of Christ. Oh yes, Lord, we, we have our fears. We don't want to leave our loved ones. We, there's things that concern us. But in the end, we have such great hope. And we know our champion is coming to make what is wrong in this world right, to fix it, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to make this world new again, to make us new again. We're going to see grandmas and grandpas and generations past, people that we, in our family lines, we didn't even know were Christians, people who prayed for us, people we've read about in biographies and in the scriptures. We're all going to be together. Man, it's amazing. It's so good so hopeful, and brings comfort to our souls. And if you, if you don't know the God of all comfort, the Father of mercies, would you just extend your heart up to him and just say, Father, would you save me? Thank you for the hope that's found in Jesus. Thank you that he died on the cross for me and rose to defeat my mortal enemy, death, to give me hope. I place my trust in Jesus and him alone for my salvation. I repent of my sin. I'm sorry, Lord. I believe, I turn my life over to you and I want to follow you and I want to make the most of every opportunity I have while I have breath in my lungs this side of heaven. Help me to follow you, to make good use of my time, not to waste time, to enjoy my life, to not live in fear but in hope and, and to look forward to a day when I will be with my Lord. If, you're, if you've been a prodigal and maybe... Life has thrown you some hard things and you've lost some hope. I pray that you'll regain hope and comfort by the passage we just studied. It's true. On the authority of Jesus Christ, it's true. And then, Lord, for these sweet saints, I just pray that you bless them, keep them, let your beautiful face shine upon them, give them strength, let them be overflowing with hope and love and peace in the midst of a very stormy time for our nation and our world. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. In Jesus' name, would you stand?